Shout that one from the rooftops. <laughs> um, so, this is Passion Week. Um, this is, uh, you know, and I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, what it means, uh, but it's, it's referred to uh, in different ways. Um, uh, to uh, Passion Week, and in um, the title of this evening's message is Christ's Road to Calvary. And I, I haven't done this before, but I wanted to do it this time. The Lord really laid it upon my heart to uh, really give you somewhat of a running commentary through the Gospel of Mark. I know that we can go into Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and, and uh, the account of um, the Lord's last week is, is found in portions of it in all of them, but I took Mark... And the reason why I, I'm taking this out of Mark is because um, the Gospel of Mark lays out Jesus as a suffering servant. And that's indeed how he came and what he came for um, the first time. He came to suffer. He came to be sacrificed on the cross and to fulfill the will of the Father perfectly. And, and he did that. So that's what we're going to be taking a look at this evening. We're going to be in Mark chapter 11. And we'll be going through Mark chapter 14. Um, chapter 14, not its in, in, in its entirety, because um, then I don't want to go into the Passover and Good Friday. That's, I'm going to reserve that for Friday. And, um, but for us, we're, we're going to pick up where we left off basically on Sunday. Sunday was uh, Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And um, so uh, that's Palm Sunday. It's also regarded as that. Uh, but we're going to pick up in Mark chapter 11, verse 12. So let's, uh, let's pray, and then we'll get into the word. Father, we thank you, Lord. We thank you for loving us the way you have, the way you do, and the way you will for all eternity. Father, I know that it is your love that draws all men unto yourself, that when, when your son was raised up, Lord, all eyes were on him, and and Lord, it's, it's that that demonstrated your love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I pray that this evening, Father, we would simply fix our gaze upon our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That we would consider everything that took place between Sunday and Friday when he did go to the cross. He didn't shy away. He didn't pull back. He didn't withdraw. He went forth and he did everything that he was supposed to do. I pray, Father, that as we consider these things, Lord, that we would be encouraged by the love that you have demonstrated to us. That we would see, perhaps, Jesus and his preparation of his disciples as a preparation for us. As we continue to walk, to grow, and I pray to be fruitful as we abide in Christ. To your glory. Until you come for us and we're raptured or until we are called home to be with you. I pray, Father, that we would always, always, Lord, be growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That we would bless you, glorify you in the way we speak, the way we think and the way we act. And so, Father, we want to commit this evening into your hands. Father, we ask your blessing and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, again, this week is referred to quite commonly as Passion Week and uh, is described as the Passion of the Christ. Um, we all know Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ, and it is indeed the, uh, basically the depiction of Christ's last week on this earth. And it is indeed Christ's road to Calvary, the hill upon which he declares victory over sin and death and makes a way for us to know forgiveness of sins, reconciliation unto the Father. We are restored through that act unto the Father as we place our faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Some say that the reason this week is called Passion Week is because of the love and willingness by Jesus to knowingly go to the cross. He knowingly marched to the cross to die a sinner's death, even though he was sinless. Hebrews 12.2 says, uh, and, and I believe this would make the case, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him. So 
his joy that was said before him was perfectly fulfilling the will of the Father. In that perfect will of the Father comes you and I. So for the joy that was set before him in fulfilling this act of sacrifice, he made it possible for us to have a restored relationship with the Father. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. John 3.16, we know this very well. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. In Isaiah 53.10 it says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. That is Jesus Christ. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And he was speaking of Jesus Christ. Still others say that the reason this week is called Passion Week is because the word passion has actually changed. It's kind of morphed in its original meaning. Its original meaning meant suffering, specifically the suffering of Jesus Christ, that he willingly endured that suffering for you and I. I believe in many ways it is both. It was our sin that demanded payment, but it was his love for you and I that he willingly paid the price we deserve to pay. Jesus both suffered and did so for us because of his perfect love for you and I. Romans 5.8 says, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This last Sunday we covered Palm Sunday, something that happened a little over 2,000 years ago, which is amazing to think uh, of this very fact. And um, I know Pastor David Rosales just came back from Israel. And uh, in fact, he's teaching right now and uh, just to think, uh, perhaps someday, um, you know, if, if possible, um, you know, we'll make that journey to Jerusalem and, and go through the streets of, uh, or Israel and go through the streets of Jerusalem and, and, and around the Sea of Galilee and, and experience those types of things. But just, just to think, this is, this is true. This is fact. This is exactly what took place. A little over 2,000 years ago, we have this triumphal entry of our Lord Jesus Christ as he came into Jerusalem. This was in fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9. Now Jesus that night spent, spent it in Bethany. The remainder of the week is what we'll be covering this evening leading up to Friday, the day in which Jesus was crucified. Uh, for obvious reasons, uh, because of time, uh, we're going to briefly touch on those things that took place throughout this week. We can't go into depth, but what, what really my prayer is to give us a good understanding of what took place throughout that week. To give us that uh, good, perfect pi picture, that focus uh, of the love of Christ and how it is that he kept his eyes fixed on the cross. And that's where the power lies. Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The Apostle Paul knew the power of the cross and also knew not to allow anything to distract him from the message of the cross, not even, not even himself. And he said in 1 Corinthians uh, 2, 2, he says, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I love that verse. Um, when sometimes we're distracted, even, like I said, even, even ourselves, we can, you know, uh, Randy and I were talking about how it is that we can have pity parties and, and, you know, we can actually be unbiblical in the way we're, we're handling things in our own lives and draw more attention to ourselves than really should, we should. And, uh, and, it's, it, and it's not right. We can also be distracted by the things that are around us. You know, and there's so much around us. There's so, it's just busy. Lives are busy, Right. You guys, I'm sure you'll agree, agree with me that life is busy. It's going by super fast. And we can be distracted very easily from really what's most important. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ in our, in our lives. And, and to not only um, understand um, that we are to um, stand our ground and stand fast in the truth, but we are to walk in the truth. And we are also to continue to proclaim the gospel, to tell others about Jesus Christ. So uh, we know that um, Jesus was sent by the Father 
to die for you and I. And what he did and taught and warned of in these days leading up to Friday is a message that I believe we need to understand and heed because there's a lot that he taught in between. So let's take a moment and consider Christ's road to Calvary as a suffering servant according to the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 11, verse 12. says, On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. This is Jesus. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Now, I want to explain something to you, which is very common with um, the way Mark writes. M- Mark has what's uh, called as a, the, the, the Mark sandwich. And, um, and you have um, the, the story of the fig tree. We have this first portion, but we also have the portion that we're going to read right now, which continues in verse 20 and goes all the way through to verse 26. What, what he does there, he's, he's driving home a point. We have in the middle um, the, the time in which Jesus cleansed the temple. And this all goes together. And, and this is what Jesus is doing uh, the next day after he enters Jerusalem, spent the night in, in, uh, in, in Bethany. And now we come across this fig tree situation. Uh, Jesus goes to it. He's hungry. Uh, he sees that it has leaf and uh, leaves, and uh, yet when he goes to it, being hungry, wants a fig, there's no fig, there's more to it. He curses it, right? So we're going to go to verse 20 and continue on, and then we'll tackle the verses between. So as they passed by in the morning, verse 20, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you curse is withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received uh, received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. So a few lessons to learn from this one particular situation. The fig tree, when it is, when it has leaves, when it has leaves, it's also supposed to be bearing fruit. You see leaves on a fig tree, it's supposed to have fruit at the same time. So when Jesus came to it, he expected it to have fruit along with the leaves, but found no fruit. God's people are not supposed to just look like they're in season, with leaves uh, having been drawn and look like it's supposed to be bearing fruit, but not have any fruit at all. Now, Jesus cursed it, and it withered away. And in verses 20 through 26, when the disciples came by, and and remember that they had heard him say, uh, curse the tree. They had heard him curse the tree, and then now they're walking by, and they're all... Can you imagine? I mean, you see Jesus curse the tree, and the next moment you walk by, and it's it's dead. It's completely dead. It's withered away all the way down to its roots. Um, it, it it has to be. I mean, no matter how many miracles you've seen, it's kind of like wow, this is, this is amazing. He just spoke to this fig tree, and, and it's and it's done. It's laying over with dead roots and this hole, right? They were surprised, and Peter expressed his surprise. He says, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Yeah, it has. And Jesus took this time to teach them that nothing is too hard for God. And here's the point to this story. Nothing is too hard for God. As he says, so it is. I think oftentimes we need to remember that, that as he says, so it is. It is, and we need to walk with that confidence, knowing that. 
They are to confidently live in the truth of God's word and pray according to God's word, including forgiving others that our Father in heaven may forgive us without any reservations. It's kind of interesting, though, that as he went through this lesson that he says, hey, when you stand and, you know, forgive others. Make sure you forgive others uh, so that I may forgive you. Now, if you don't forgive others, really the very simple point to that is that we remain in our sin. We have actually not, um, we have not confessed our sin fully. And so therefore, we are not fully re- repentive and we're not fully uh, forgiven of our sins. He can't. Why? Because we, we remain in our sin. Now, in John chapter 15, verses 6 through 8 says, If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. The closer we come to Jesus, the more we understand his character and what blesses and glorifies him, the less we'll be asking of anything that is in direct opposition to his will. We want to bless him. We know that Jesus also said that if you love me, you will obey my commandments. So our desire always should be Lord, help me walk in your ways. Help me to please you, glorify you, abide in you, cling to you, walk according to your truth, according to your word. And if we ask in that way, it says there's nothing that I won't hold back from giving you. Our prayer will be in line with who he is and his will for our lives. Jesus was teaching them throughout this To not be all leaves and no fruit. Don't look the part, but are not genuine. There were plenty of examples they could look around of spiritual hypocrisy. And Jesus was telling them, don't be like them. You know them very well. At this point, they're they're actually going to come on scene um, here shortly. And we're going to see exactly who he's talking about. That who's all leaves and no fruit. We're going to be talking about, uh, you know, in regards to them in a few moments. But there's plenty of examples of that all the way around them. And he says, don't be like them. Be fruitful and truly glorify the Lord. Along these lines, verses 15 through 19, again, is sandwiched between these two in the Gospel of Mark. Verse 15 says, And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. There's a reason why the uh, Gospel of Mark, the, why it is that he wrote it in this manner. The, uh, just keep in mind the celebration of the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread brought to the city uh, six times what it would normally be populated with. At this point, I, I mean, on a regular day, uh, uh, no feast, no celebration. It, it would enjoy a population of about 40,000 people. So six times that is what? Over, is it 2 million, right? 2.4, 2.5. It could be a lot, a lot of people came in. So all these people were coming in to observe the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, all of them, they're like, now's our chance. Man, we can make a killing here. And they did. They took advantage of the people, turned the temple into a place of commerce, and basically they ripped off the people with the exchange rate by which they exchanged the temple money for their money. You see, they, they couldn't um, offer, make their, their tithes offering. None of that, none of those sacrifices could be given 
um, in any other denomination but the temple money. And so they provided the exchange and the exchange rate was outrageous. The Lord intended the temple to be a house of prayer, a house of worship. That's what it was. And they had turned it into a place of business. And even worse, as he identified it and described it as a den of robbers or a den of thieves. They were stealing from the people. They were taking advantage of them. And Jesus expressed a righteous indignation. He was overturning tables and he was, it said he was teaching them, right? And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Even though he was, he was expressing himself this way, and, and at the same time it says he's, he was teaching. He was, he was teaching them. This is not the way it should be. We should not be taking advantage of the people. This temple that was built was supposed to be there for all the nations to come together and pray and worship God. Not so that you would take advantage of them. It wasn't for your own personal benefit. It's not for earthly wealth, but for a heavenly wealth that they were to come and worship and receive truly from me. Even though the religious leaders had found out about Jesus' righteous indignation and in the overturning of the tables and all the rest he did, they didn't do anything directly to him that evening or that day. They couldn't do anything because they feared the people. They feared some kind of a revolt would take place. And, uh, but they went away and they were trying to figure out exactly how it is that they could, in the words of Scripture, destroy him. That was, that's what was in their hearts. They wanted to absolutely destroy him. We continue in verse 27. And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? Uh, they were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. I really, uh, it, it's the simple things that really bring me great pleasure. <laughs> these are one of them. Um, I believe this is a plain lesson. Very plain. There are too many people that are distracted with unproductive arguments. There are too many people that get caught up trying to, I don't, I don't, I don't know if it's truly, genuinely try to convince, convince someone um, otherwise. Uh, the thing here is that Jesus exemplified it. You don't have to answer everyone that comes to you challenging you to explain your faith and who God is, and if you believe that Jesus is the Son of God. A plain answer of, yes, I believe Jesus is the Son of God. He is the name above all names. He's the only way in which we can truly know salvation. Well, one of the things that we know is that there are some who sincerely seek truth, and others who simply want to start an argument. Their intention was known by the Lord. Were they sincerely seeking the truth? Or were their intentions to mock Jesus? At this point, I mean, if you go back to the very beginning of this section, verse 27. It says, and they came again to Jerusalem. And, he, and he was, as he was walking into the temple. Can you imagine? I mean, 
uh, he had just previously overturned the ta- tables, um, called them all thieves and robbers. Why do you do this? And, and now here comes Jesus. He's strolling back into the temple. This has to be courageous, right? This is one who is, who is confident. So then he's being questioned. But he's not being questioned because they sincerely want to know the truth. They're questioning him to mock him. They're questioning him to catch him in something that isn't true. That's why they were questioning him. There are few, as I have learned, who sincerely have questions about who God is and exactly who Jesus is. I mean, I'm sorry, but go on Facebook. I see all kinds of arguments. And quite honestly, 99.99999% of them lead nowhere. They lead nowhere. I've seen all kinds of people arguing. It's like, why? You know what? Just, you know, I just, I just put scripture, like comment on it. I don't care. Comment on it. Do whatever you want to do. But this is the truth. And. I'm not going to engage in a conversation, you know, argument going back and forth. I'm just not going to do that. Hey, listen, if you want to go have coffee with me, let's go do it face to face. Oftentimes on social media, uh, a lot of people hide behind their username and they say things that they wouldn't normally say to your face. Catch them, go have coffee with them. If they truly have questions about it, good. You have one friend and hopefully... Uh, led them to Christ and they can see the truth. But rarely have I really seen people who, are, who sincerely have questions. They just want to basically bring across their own agenda in that, those conversations. At the same time, I do want to say we should be patient and humble in our responses, but also wise in discerning the genuine seekers from those who genuinely seek to mock and tear you down. We need, we need to tell the difference, right? I mean, Jesus in Matthew 10, 16 says, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Warning, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves means there's, there's danger. You, you need to like be really clear in your thinking. Make sure that your head is, is, uh, is you know, on a swivel. You're, you're looking everywhere. You're, you're aware of your surroundings, right? Because he says, so be as wise as serpents, be as cunning as serpents, and innocent as doves. Wow, that's, that's pretty wild, but that's exactly, by the Spirit of God, exactly who we need to be. Humble and yet confident. Um, always expecting the best, and when the worst comes at us, we don't react, but we respond in the Spirit. That's not always the way it happens, but that is the way we are called to respond. So this is all leading to the cross. He's he's doing this. He's teaching this. He has his disciples with him. And he's confronted by these chief priests and scribes and elders of the church. His disciples are there. And they're watching how he responds. As we continue, verse 1 in chapter 12, he says, And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent... To them another servant, and they struck him on the head, and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and they, uh, and, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come to destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. 
This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. This served as a powerful and clear illustration to the people at that point in that time. Powerful. He was addressing the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders with this story. They were still there. They were, they were just, they had just uh, confronted Jesus, and Jesus asked them a question. They didn't have an answer, and he said, neither will I give you an answer. Uh, boys, let me give you a parable. I started speaking to the disciples. At the end of that, they knew very well that he was speaking about them. It, it, it wasn't, it's not ambiguous. It's not, well, maybe it could have been. No, it, we're, we're positive. They knew exactly who it is that he was talking about. He was talking about them. The chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. They had just come to Jesus with previ- the, the previous question of authority. Now the Lord has sent many prophets. If you go through the Old Testament, you'll see it. The Lord, because of his patience and his love for his people, sent prophets to them over and over and over and over again to warn them, to lead them, to guide them, to govern them. But the Israelites would treat them with contempt and even kill them, not liking what they had to say. I don't like your answer. I just got through reading through Second Chronicles and there was a point where Hezekiah, the king, had sent letters throughout all Israel and Judah to assemble at the house of the Lord to observe the Passover. And in Second Chronicles chapter 30, verse 10, it says, So when couriers went from city to city through the country of Ephraim and Manasseh and as far as Zebulun, but they laughed them to scorn and mock them. So the king was sending them out to, to, to bring them back. Come, come back. Let's observe the Passover according to uh, the word of God, according to the law. They laughed them to scorn and mocked them. And, and unfortunately, this was a regular occurrence and the final prophet would be sent to them to warn them. Well, and it wasn't just anyone else. It was the Son of God. And he too would be scorned and mocked and hung on the cross. Again, it was clear that Jesus was speaking of them. And it was being made very clear to the disciples who it is that was before them. These were the very people. May you not be those people. May you not be the ones who laugh and mock and really belittle God and his message of good news brought by Jesus Christ. He was teaching them. Now these men that were before him, they weren't convicted to the point of confession and repentance, but in fact their hatred and anger and hard hearts only increased and simply led them to plot Jesus' murder. They continued on. But there was more testing that was to come Jesus' way. Verse 13. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians uh, to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Wow, such... Such depth, right? They marveled at him. At this point now, they're sending the 
Pharisees, remember the, the chief priests, the elders, the scribes were sent, and now it's the Pharisees and Herodians uh, were sent to trap Jesus, to try and catch him in, in some kind of a, a lie. The lesson is, really don't cling too tightly to the things of this world. The law of the land says to pay taxes. Here's, here's some profound wisdom coming your way. Pay taxes. Pay taxes. Don't cheat. They're Caesar's. It's got his inscription. It's his. Give it to him. But there's more here. More lessons. Um, you got how it was that Jesus was addressed? Did you catch that? Don't believe the flattering tongue of men. Listen closely to what is said in conjunction with words of flattery. They're trying to butter you up, like in, in our language, right? He, he was just trying to butter him up, set him up for the, the kill, right, to come in. They thought they were clever, but he called them, basically, he, he looked right through them, knowing their hypocrisy, uh, he replied to them with this, why put me to the test? He, he, he started out his, his response with, why put me to the test? It's like, whoa, you know, wow, you saw right through that. Yes, I saw right through that. Be wise and don't be sedated and then led into destruction. Um, you need to be discerning and wise. All of this is preparing the disciples for what is to come and for us today for what is before us. Jesus knew he was on his way to the cross and is engaging in all of this. Any other person would have been like, oh, this, is, this is my last day on earth, my last week on earth. I, I'm just going to go. It's overwhelming. It's too much, right? It's just too much. For the Lord, no. His will was to perfectly fulfill the plan of the Father, completely all the way through. He was teaching, he was, he was continuing to prepare his disciples for when he was gone to be discerning, to be wise, to continue to spread the gospel throughout the whole earth. This is all in preparation. And I pray that the church would listen. This is all in our preparation too. We should be tough-skinned, but we should have the heart of God. You know, humble and yet confident. Wise and discerning and not being like just gullible and given to anything that comes our way. Jesus was engaging in all of this. Again, first it was the chief priests, the scribes and the elders, and then it was the Pharisees and the Herodians, and now we come to the Sadducees. It's their turn who, by the way, do not believe in the resurrection, but they were going to ask about the resurrection issue. They were not only rebuked for their misunderstanding of the scripture, but also to make sure they knew that God is the God of the living and not of the dead, and they are wrong in their belief that there was no resurrection. He instructed them. Jesus was correcting false doctrine to serve us today, and the disciples then. So for us, we are to know the scriptures and teach them accurately the way they are. 2 Timothy 2.15 says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Verse 18 says, And the Sadducees came to him who said that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third, likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. That's, um, he wasn't seeking to, <laughs> talk about uh, bridge building, right? 
again, he discerned their hypocrisy and the way they were coming across. It was just very mocking. Everyone knew that the Sadducees didn't, didn't believe in the resurrection, and yet here they are uh, saying, hey, the law says this, and so all these had her as wife, according to the law. So, whose is she? So he answered, is this not the reason you are wrong, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. We need to know scripture, but we need to know it in context. You know, when they brought this to, to uh, Jesus, they took one verse and they said, you know, so which, which is it? They said, well, you, you, don't, you don't understand. You don't know the scriptures. You don't know the whole of scripture. You need to study to know it so that when someone comes to you and asks you a question or, or tries to lead you astray, that you are wise to it and you do not allow yourself to be led astray, to be deceived. And so this is what he, he was making it very clear. You're wrong. You're wrong. This is, this is where you're wrong. This is how you're wrong. God is not the God of the dead, but of, of the living. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they're alive and well. Jesus, again, was correcting false doctrine to serve us today and the disciples then. We are to know scriptures and teach them accurately the way they are written. 2 Timothy 2.15, again, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. And then we get to the great commandment. The great commandment, verse 28, as we continue, and one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, uh, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other beside him. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all, uh, whole, more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, uh, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Pharisees, uh, Herodians, elders, chief priests, I mean, they, they all came. And uh, after this, it just no more. Uh, this scribe, he was interested in engaging Jesus, even after those questions were presented to him, and asked him this question, to which the scribe affirmed Jesus in his answer. Jesus' response to the scribe's response to his answer prompted him, and the others to stop asking questions. They didn't want to appear as if they were being taught by Jesus and they were agreeing with him. Now here's the teacher, you know, the one that we're supposed to be tripping up and all of a sudden I catch myself agreeing with him. Like, ah, oh, you know, never mind. We're going to go ahead and go our own way. This was, um, according to the law, this is the, the greatest commandment, right? This, this is the great commandment. And uh, in fact, we just went over this uh, not too long ago on Sunday morning. And we are to love the Lord our God, right? With all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our mind, with all our strength. But he also said, the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And, and the scribe affirmed that. He said, absolutely, I, I agree with you. And he was getting closer to understanding what it meant to believe that who was before him was the Son of God. To know the law is one thing. To affirm someone who is teaching the law is one thing. That's fine. You, you can agree with that. 
But what we need to get to is not just believing that, okay, this is true, but to get to the next portion to where it is that we believe that Jesus is the Son of God. He was saying, you're almost there. You're almost there. You almost believe that I am who I am. I am he who I say I am. I'm the Son of God. But they didn't want to appear like, again, as if they're being taught by the Lord. And so they, uh, they didn't ask him any more questions. So then Jesus continues in verse 35. And as Jesus taught in the temple, so he turned over the tables before, now he's teaching them in the temple again. He said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit Declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching, he said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and to have the best seats in the synagogues in the places of honor at feasts who devour widows houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Again, just preparing the disciples. You know, he had just insulted everyone else, right? Hey, why not finish off with the scribes? Pointing them out, you know, and saying, hey, listen, this is what's common. This is what they enjoy. This is who they are. He started out by teaching in the temple, and and remember that, Everyone around him heard him gladly. So they were, they were hanging on every word that he was teaching. Every, every word that he was saying, they were hanging on every word. They received him well. Jesus knew what the scribes taught and used what they taught to point to himself. But at the same time warned the people of their hypocrisy and the advantage that they were taking of the people. Just because they teach soundly doesn't mean they know or believe what they're teaching. Make sure their lives are matching with what they teach and are not there to simply make a buck off of you. There are, unfortunately, many hirelings today, as there were then, just in it to turn a profit for themselves at the expense of others. Um, Church just is a, it's a business. Uh, and and that's, why, that's why it's difficult sometimes for, for Christians. You, you go out and, it, and quite honestly, it's made a, a bit more difficult because people are expecting something else. Oh, you're all hypocrites. You're all asking for money. Well, no, <laughs> we all, we're all sinners and we all fall short of the glory of God. But I pray that we're genuine in our love for Christ and the love of his word and to teach the word and and to live out what it says in God's word to his glory and for the benefit of his people and really for all others as well. We need to be careful though. And Jesus is pointing out these people. In fact, a scribe had just come to him. And I have no doubt that the scribe was even still around. And here, here he was speaking of them. He said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. So he was, he was given the warning, not only to the disciples, but also to the scribes who were there. Speaking of widows, though, because for the scribes, he, he said that um, they... Um, They actually devour widows' houses. Um, Verse 41, Jesus has this this lesson for his disciples. Verse 41 says, And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. What an example of joyful, sacrificial 
giving. No rebuke came from Jesus. None at all. Had nothing to do with anyone else. It was just her and her heart. And what it is that he witnessed was exactly what he wanted. He's like, disciples, you know, come on over here. I, I, I want to talk to you about something, something that I've just observed. This serves as a good example of giving. Many say, I will give when I have more. Perhaps you have said that. I'll, I'll give. I'm not giving now, but I'll give when I, when, I, when I have more. But oftentimes when you have more, many will give less and keep more. And, th- and that's generally the way it happens. You know, if, if you're not giving of your time now, you, uh, quite honestly, you won't be giving when you have more time either. I've seen that over and over again. Uh, generally, the people who are giving of their time and of, and of their tithes of their offering um, for everything that happens here, missions, uh, the different ministries that happen, all of that, and you do trust the Lord, then you'll give joyfully. And that is for the furtherance of the kingdom of God, for those things that he has set before us to accomplish. Generosity marks the Christian. Wise is the man who knows to give that which he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Riches in heaven. Accumulate that. Keep in mind that she had two mites. You know, that was everything. The the Lord Jesus knew that that was everything. Everything. And so he knew as she took out the two mites, she could have grabbed one mite, put it back in her pocket, and given the other mite, and it would have been, wow, that would have been extravagant giving. 50% of everything you, you have just went into the offering right there. That's more than I'm sure all of us give. But for her, she took everything, two mites, and put them in. And the Lord said, And she gave it joyfully. The Lord said, this is an example of the generosity that we are to have with ourselves on this earth. That's what glorifies the Lord. God loves a joyful giver, one who gives without any reservations, but gives as a sacrifice unto the one who deserves that and everything else. Remember that David refused to give what cost him nothing. The spirit in which we give determines the value of what's being given and not the amount. The spirit in which we give, you know, that's, that's what really gives what we give value, not the amount. You know, for the person who gives small, but the manner in which he gives is big, is a lot more than the person who's just, eh, you know what, I, I don't need that. And, and you can have it. It's kind of like leftovers, you know. Much more is the person who gave with a spirit of giving and generosity. He placed great value in what he gave. In verse 13, as we continue, verse 1, And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Um. Again, Jesus knew he was prophesying about the destruction of the temple. It did happen. You guys know what year? 70, right? So some years passed, and, and this is exactly what came about. Um, you know, can you imagine? I mean, the, the disciples are, are simply commenting on the temple. How oh, beautiful. This is magnificent, isn't it? And then he says, oh, yeah. But it's all going to come down. And there's not one stone that's going to remain upon the other. Like, wow. That's pretty amazing. But he prophesied that and it came to pass. The remainder of the chapter speaks of the last days and the coming of the Son of Man. Uh, we're going to read it and uh, I'll comment a little bit as we go. Keep in mind, think about this. Is This again is Jesus' last week. Last week. And so he's teaching them all of these things. He says, and, and as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, so it's off in the distance, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, no doubt by the comment that he had just made, tell us when all these things, uh, 
tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished. And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. These are the false messiahs, people who claim to be Jesus. Don't, don't let them lead you astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For a nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard. For they will deliver you over to councils and you will be beaten in synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death. And the father is child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. So, through this, the Lord is, is teaching them, explaining to them exactly what it is that is to be expected in the last days. Um, this is something that, as he tells us today, these, this is what is coming. We are not to lose heart. These are all, by the way, as he described in the first portion, it's the beginning of the birth pains, but there's more to come. Be on your guard. Be aware. Be understanding of the times. And stand. Stand in the truth. Do not give way. When you are brought before kings and governors and, and leaders and, 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 and everyone that is going to ask you for some kind of a testimony. Give them testimony of who I am. The Holy Spirit will give you. Why? Why do I know that it's the gospel? Because the Holy Spirit gives witness of the Son. He points to the Son. And so those are the words that we are to speak. Hey, listen, all these things, the Lord, the Bible tells us in his word, these are the things that are going to happen. Take heed lest, lest you too be forever separated from the Father. Tell them of Jesus Christ. It says, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Just endure. Keep going. Believe. Verse 14 but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. That is the Antichrist who will make himself out to be God and taking a seat uh, in the temple and saying, he is God. The abomination of desolation. Let the one who's on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to his cloak, to take his cloak and, and alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. Be on guard, but be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. So what happens when you're told beforehand of these things that are going to happen? You're aware of them. They're expected. And you say, well, it's just as the Lord had described it to be. That, that's where we're not taken captive. You know, it's, it's like people are... All kinds of wonders and signs and miracles are being performed. And someone over here says, oh, this is Jesus Christ. No, you, no you're not. Um, well, I am the true prophet. Uh, no, 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 you're not. And um, other people say things and claim to be people 
that they truly are not. We know from Scripture, no, you're not. And the Lord has told us very clearly in his word to not allow ourselves to be deceived. He says, but in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. And I'm just going to go through because we can be here for a long time. So from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Just one thing with that. The generation that starts this, we'll see it all the way through. That is the generation that we're speaking of. Not the one that Jesus was speaking to in that day, for this did not come to pass in that day. Right? It's the generation that starts to see all this take place. That's the generation that's going to see it all the way through. It's going to be amazing. So those are the people that as they read this, they're going to say, oh, here it is. It's all right here. But... Verse 32, concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Stay awake. The Lord's making this known to the disciples and to all the people and to us today so that we would just stay awake. Stay awake. The Lord's coming soon. Just stay awake. Let's be clear-minded, sober-minded, be full of the Spirit, and, and, and be, be ready. We need to be ready. And then verse... Verses 1 through 11, this is the last part, and this is leading up to Good Friday. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii, a whole one year's wage, and given to the poor. And they scolded her, but Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me, for you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for, uh, for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed, in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who is one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. So he was betrayed for, for how much? 30 pieces of silver, right? 30 pieces of silver. So, this last portion, the religious leaders didn't want to, didn't want to face a revolt. They, they didn't want to do anything before or during uh, the Passover or the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And um, so, they decided that they were going to kill Jesus after all of this. Well, um, the Lord's in control. God is in control in His timing. And it was Jesus who was crucified, um, the Lamb without blemish, the Lamb of God without blemish, um, on that Friday. Verses 3 through 9 is a display of extravagant love and devotion for Jesus Christ. Uh, we know that this is Mary of Bethany. Um, this is the sister of Martha. This is the sister of Lazarus. 
And so she came. This was not the sinful woman. Uh, this is a separate occasion. Um, this was an anointing of Jesus um, for, for burial, as he said. She poured the entire content on the head of Jesus, and he welcomed it and described it as an anointing for burial. And it was his burial that she was anointing him for. And, but it was what, a, what an extravagant display of love for, for him and devotion. There was nothing too much. And, and oftentimes that would be their, their savings. That, that's what they had saved up. That was what they could kind of just pour out a little bit at a time in time of need and, uh, and really stay afloat. And this, she broke the flask and it's, it's, it's all on you. And you're worth it. Everything. But then we see the betrayal of Jesus by Judas. What a road Jesus traveled and made his way to Calvary. He wept for Jerusalem. That's something else that he did. He taught, he warned, he proclaimed and loved on his disciples. But the ultimate demonstration of his love was still yet to come. Friday is coming. The fullness of time is upon him to fulfill the Father's will. And he would soon observe the Passover meal with his disciples and the agonize in the Garden of Gethsemane over what was to come. Hebrews 12.2 once more Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That one scribe was, was almost there. But I pray that we would always get beyond just the letter of the law and get to the word get to the place to where we believe indeed that Jesus is the Son of God. That's my hope for, for all, all the people who hopefully are coming through those doors on Sunday who do not normally come to, to church, that they would come to know Jesus as, as Lord and Savior. Not just the Word is, it, it's, it's a good book that we can learn from, but that Jesus is the Son of God. This is all that He, he did leading up to Calvary. And, uh, and we'll pick up on Friday um, and just observing um, the crucifixion of our Lord and, and what that all signifies. So let's pray. Father, oh Lord, we thank you once more. Oh, we cannot express our love for you um, enough. There's, there's no limit to it. Just as Mary came and poured out the contents of that fragrant oil upon your head and, um, and just, just displayed her love for you. I pray, Lord, that we would never hold back from being extravagant in, in our display of devotion and love for you. Lord, just as that widow uh, was willing, w- willing to give joyfully, Lord, everything that she had, uh, so I pray, Lord, that we would not be reserved about just blessing you with our, with our time, with who we are, with everything, Lord, that you may be glorified in our lives and, and that others may see our love for you. And so, Father, we, uh, we thank you, Lord, for what this, this week means. And I do pray, Lord, that um, we would consider our sin as well in light of your sacrifice and how it is that our sin has placed you on that cross. Not only our sin, but it's our sin and and more importantly, your love for us. Pray, Lord, that this week would be a week of rejoicing and the victory over sin and death in Christ Jesus. And we have the hope of eternity with you in all of your glory. We thank you, Lord, and we pray this in Jesus' name.